Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, it's definitely some educational activity, but it's also more of a talking with than talking to. I find a lot of times private industry tries to talk to government and tell them what they should be doing or not doing and how they should be doing everything versus talking with them and understanding, you know, what are your mission objectives? What are you trying to achieve? You know, what are your unique use cases and requirements and things like that? It needs to be a, a kind of a more of a, a mutual partnership than kind of a lecture or talking to in that case. You know, you build more of a rapport and trust that way too. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. It's always nice to bring on someone who hosts a podcast of their own because selfishly, I'm always trying to get better and pick up some things to make me better at this. But my guest today isn't just a podcast host, but a legitimate thought leader in the cybersecurity space. I'm talking about none other than Chris Hughes, the president and co-founder of Acquia. Chris's nearly 20 years of IT and cybersecurity experience, first as a U.S. Air Force veteran and a former civil servant in the U.S. Navy and GSA's FedRAMP program, but he's also gotten significant experience in the private industry as well. I mentioned his podcast hosting role. He co-hosts the Resilient Cyber Podcast, which is one of the top government cyber ones out there. And he's also co-authored a book, Software Transparency, Supply Chain Security in an Era of a Software-Driven Society. And in the show today, we're going to cover many things, including FedRAMP, the latest on CMMC, which there was some news at the end of last year and early this year. So you're going to want to listen to that and a little prognostication on the year ahead. Chris, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for being on with me. Absolutely. I'm excited to chat and been following the show for quite a while. I appreciate that. I know you've you've made some comments and uh, it's only made the show better. Um, I mean, we're getting into, uh, I mean, this is the second show in the new year. Are you, uh, are you kicking off with any New Year's resolutions this year? 
Uh, you know, not many. I honestly, most of mine are personal in terms of like, you know, kind of better separating myself from work and home life and, you know, being a bit more disconnected when I log off for the day. Um, but I found like personally over the years, as I've made resolutions and stuck to them, I don't find myself needing to change quite as much every year either. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I try not to, a lot of people will wait till the end of the year, beginning of the year to sort of make this big something. And I'm always trying to evaluate almost daily where you're thinking about things and where you're going. It's, I mean, we, if we want to bring in that IT word, it's almost like an agile development as you're going. Um, you and I have actually a little bit of similarity. Um, you're just a step, step further. I have three kids. You have four kids um, to use some terminology from, from your world. That threat landscape is large, right? Uh, yeah, def definitely. I, you know, I, I, I tell people like work is the easy part of my day when I log off of work or step out of my office, you know, you never know what's going to happen or what kind of chaos you're, you're walking into. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I have, I have a, a glass door to my office. So I see my, my kids running around and hear them running around all the time. And I, uh, I'm glad I'm in here. <laughs> my wife's the one, uh, taking care of that for a lot of the day. She's a saint, but, uh, I, I usually tell people kids, I mean, especially my kids have taught me so much about myself as, being a dad taught you a lot about yourself. And if so, what does that look like on your end? Oh, hundred percent. And not to go too deep on the initial part of the episode here, but like, you know, who I am as a person, you talk about agile, agile, iterative improvement. Like it made me kind of take stock of who I am as an individual and really pushed me to be the best person I can try to be. And it's a constant work in progress. You fall short every day. Uh, but you know, it really makes you be more humble you know, uh, more patient, more kind, more empathetic, uh, you know, just it, it, um, it's made me a better person in every way possible, honestly. That's awesome. Yeah. I, so I, I coach a lot and I grew up playing soccer and I'm coaching soccer. And one of the things I always think about is when you're coaching, it, it almost makes you a better player because you're reevaluating some of the things that are fundamental. And for me, that's a, a perfect parallel for parenting because it gets you into some of the things that you want your kids to learn and, and discover and the model you want them to be it makes you really think, uh, intentionally about the things you're teaching them and reevaluating again, what's important to you, just like you said. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a great way to look at it. And, um, I want to pivot real quick and take a look at your background. Tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are now. I mean, you served in the military for a period of time, you've worked in government for a period of time, but what kind of got you to the, to the point where you're, you're president and, uh, have a deep focus on, on security. Yeah, I honestly, you know, I tinkered with computers as a kid, but it was mostly just, you know, playing video games and trying to cheat and, and hack away on the video games or something like that uh, on a PC way back in the day with a dial-up modem, you know, that kind of thing. But joined the Air Force and got put into cybersecurity. And then going back to the parenting thing, to, to be honest with you, I got out of the military and had a first, you know, my first child. And at that point, I realized like, wow, I need to, you know, I have some responsibilities. I need to really get together here and take things seriously. And that's what really opened my eyes to the opportunity of cybersecurity as a career field and really maybe go all in on learning and development and growth. Um, and so I spent, you know, four years in the Air Force, got out of there, worked as a contractor for a bit of a time for an organization known as DISA for folks that know them. Um, and then, you know, became a federal civilian for the Navy for about four and a half years, focused on cybersecurity again, cloud security, DevSecOps, you know, all those kind of buzzwords. Uh, and then went to GSA, where I was part of the FedRAMP team as one of the technical reviewers on the, on the Joint Authorization Board, as they call it, reviewing a lot of the services coming to the marketplace for government in the cloud. Uh, and then ultimately got out and worked as a government contractor for a little bit of time. And you know, found myself working for different organizations and ultimately decided to take a bet on myself and, you know, make a leap and try to, you know, find my own company with some partners here. And, and so we've been going for a little bit uh, over three years at this point. Uh, Acquia, we're a service disabled veteran owned small business focused on cybersecurity. 
Uh, so everything from cloud security, DevSecOps, you know, AppSec, Zero Trust, uh, software supply chain security, you know, Gen, I, Gen AI, you name it. Uh, we're trying to be, you know, cutting edge and help the government kind of innovate and, and we focus on securing a digital transformation, basically, as we call it. What did you see when you were, I guess, when you moved out of the military and you had that focus on cybersecurity when you were in the military, then moving into the civilian world, starting with DISA and others, what would you say the biggest difference was between how the military kind of goes after cybersecurity versus the civilian sector? I think the the biggest thing is honestly the workforce, the talent aspect of it, learning and development. I remember being a military member and you know having access to kind of like antiquated training systems and like you know old school CBT type you know things, uh, and then just getting out in the private sector and, and the kind of opening up my aperture to all the different training uh, opportunities that were out there from different websites, different platforms, you know, uh, ways to grow and develop, and you know just having companies that were willing to invest in you in many cases and then you know take a chance on you or help you uh, fund your educational advancement. Things things like that. Uh, so I think it really comes back to the workforce and the people. It's not necessarily a technical thing. And we know that the government, you know, both in terms of in uniform as a civilian as well, uh, has this challenge around str struggling to attract and retain, you know, technical talent. And I think uh, that's a big aspect of it. And and obviously that's not something that's, that's changed. I mean, there's still a, a massive talent gap right now, right? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, the talent gap. And then there's obviously, you know, factors in place like, uh, uh, you know, compensation, of course, is, is going to be one of them, you know, government will never really compete with industry on compensation. Uh, but there's just a lot of things that, you know, are intangibles, the things like quality of life, working remotely flexible from from home, for example, I remember driving into an office sitting in a cubicle to log in and work remotely with people who were all over the country, and it didn't make much sense to me, it ate up a lot of my time and my day away from my family, things like that. Or using old school legacy, you know, endpoints and laptops and just antiquated software, uh, you know, the things that make your job uh, frustrating is, is is the best way to put it. Everyone kind of is familiar with like the fix our computers memo that kind of made its way around uh, the internet, you know, a year or two ago. And I think that's a big part of it. It's just feeling like you have access to innovative technologies. You have flexibility to do the work you want to do. You're, you have autonomy. You're, you're empowered to do the things you want to do to make an impact on the mission. Uh, that's some of the biggest things, honestly, and unfortunately, that I've seen difference from being in uniform to out of uniform. I would imagine that being able to kind of jump into roles around around cyber um, with uh, within the military, within DOD environments, that you would at least get a little bit more hands-on than you might have in some entry-level roles in the private sector. So yeah, compensation is different, but the level of, I guess, experience that you kind of get fast-tracked into, I mean, would you say that's higher on the government side, DOD side? I definitely think so. And that's, you know, honestly, that's what kept me around, you know, not only while I was in the military, but after I got out is, you know, you look at the mission that you're doing, you know, first off, like that's more of a, a moral thing, but the mission that you're doing is hard to emulate that in the private sector, you know, uh, helping a company improve revenue is not the same as securing uh, an installations facilities and communication network, or doing something with forward deployed forces or things like that. And that's what kind of keeps me around the public sector now, even out of uniform. And honestly, like you said, you know, coming in as a young guy in my early 20s, you know, teenager years kind of thing, and just getting access to like, you know, this massive base infrastructure communications network, all this telecommunications equipment, it's really hard to get that kind of experience and exposure in the private sector. And I think that if you're looking to go into cybersecurity, starting off in the military is one of, if not the best ways to go about doing so. Yeah, I mean, you you get, uh, I mean, the level of trust, I'm sure they, they, they put in you to do those things. And it's, I'm sure it's a responsibility that you feel. I mean, it's not only just securing installations and all of that, but I mean, now it's, it's a matter of national security when you're working on these things, which is kind of cool. What, um, I mean, you mentioned, uh, the work that you're doing around gen AI 
right? And obviously, you could you could trip over a headline around artificial intelligence last year, especially around around generative AI, chat GPT kind of brought it into the mainstream. But what are some of the things that you think government should be doing right now to prepare for maybe the next five years and how AI, more specifically generative AI, is going to impact the cyber landscape? Yeah, I think the government is actually, you know, in this case, they're, they're doing a lot of great things. We've seen like a pretty uh, comprehensive GAO report identifying the robust and many use cases that different agencies are looking at around getting AI and AI more broadly. Um, but one of the things I definitely want to call out again is going back to that workforce, you know, no matter the uh, technology, how innovative and how, you know, uh, capable and promising it is, we need a workforce that's capable and competent working with those technologies. Uh, so getting these technologies in people's hands early and often, letting them tinker with them, letting them play with them, understand how they work, how they function, and then how to secure them is a big part of it. And we've seen different agencies and different, you know, program offices take different approaches. Some have tried to outright ban potentially like a technology, which is not a great way to get people yeah. exposed and familiar with it. And then we see another, you know, people lean into it and, and get people, get their hands dirty early on is one big thing. Uh, and then honestly, just identifying, you know, real rational business use cases and mission use cases for these technologies. You know, why do we need to use it? Do we have a real business or use or mission use case here versus just kind of diving in and getting caught in the hype around it? It's, you know, everyone feels like we need to be using this. Everyone's using this. If I don't use this, I'm going to fall behind, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, just understanding why are we going to use it? How are we going to use it for what purposes and put some guardrails around that so that you go on the right path, you know, from the outset. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky dichotomy, right? Where as a government, employee and executive you're trying to understand and and in some instances build policy around some of these new technologies coming in and we can use gen i as gen ai as as one but i mean you can pick from a number of them right but at the same time you you have that like you give them the heisman where you're trying to keep it outside of the enterprise and how do you really do what you just kind of said how do you get in there tinker with it learn about it understand it and try to assimilate how it can help you when you have that kind of standoffish policy around, we're not going to touch it until we understand it, but we can't understand it until we touch it. It's kind of the chicken and the egg. Yeah. And one real quick comment on that is what happens a lot of times and people who are in security are familiar with this is like the business, the mission, they're already off using this, whether it's authorized or not in many cases. That shadow, using... shadow IT. Yeah. Right. Shadow IT. So, so while that's happening, you know, and, and security sitting over here in our ivory tower, you know, crafting the most perfectly articulated policies and processes around using it, the business and the mission is already using it. Then you have to come behind and getting to that you know, the age old paradigm of bolting security on versus building it in because security has been waiting, kind of watching, crafting policies and processes, waiting for the perfect approach while the business and the mission, they've already moved on. They're already using these things, whether authorized or not. And now you got to play catch up. So I think, you know, going back to that again, it's just getting involved very early, very, very often and working with the mission and being hand in hand throughout that process can go a long way. How, how much responsibility do you feel at being a leader within a private sector organization to be able to help educate government? Because I'd have to imagine, I mean, I've, I talked to a lot of public sector officials on this on this show. And a lot of them talk about how they go to the private sector, whether it's through associations, whether it's directly to learn more about these things. Do you feel that sense of responsibility to try to help governments understand some of these some of these technologies? I, I mean, I do in terms of having like a pretty large platform in terms of LinkedIn and a large network in that regard and being passionate about this and passionate about national security and government technology. Uh, but I also say it's not so much, you know, it's definitely some educational activity, but it's also more of a talking with than talking to. I find a lot of times private industry tries to talk to government and tell them what they should be doing or not doing and how they should be doing everything versus talking with them and understanding, you know, what are your mission objectives? What are you trying to achieve? You know, what are your unique use cases and requirements and things like that? It needs to be a, a kind of a more of a 
a, a mutual partnership than kind of a lecture or talking to in that case, you know, you build more rapport and trust that way too. Yeah. I think that's a good point. It's one of the reasons why I like um, some of those third party groups that kind of bring the teams together. I think listening is something that we in the private sector can do even more uh, get better at, right. Is active listening because we need to understand their challenge before we can tell them what they should be doing to fix them. Yeah, a lot of times uh, in the private sector, you'll see this a lot, you know, both in government and in commercial is like, you know, consultants, you know, platform vendors, whomever show up with a solution without ever really understanding what the problem is or what you're really trying to solve for. You know, we automatically have a solution in hand. Uh, so I think just understanding initially what the challenges are, the pain points and things like that can go a lot further than just kind of coming in with a solution in hand without hearing out what the actual issue is. So we mentioned Gen AI, and obviously that took over the headlines in, in 2023. What are some of the headlines that that you think will take over 2024? What what, what are some of your predictions, uh, Chris, for for cybersecurity in the next year? Yeah, I think on the AI front, uh, we're going to see an interesting continued kind of arms race between malicious actors and you know defenders and practitioners on the defensive side of trying to exploit you know AI technologies for nefarious purposes, you know uh, you know compromise or exploit breaches faster and when they're disclosed, for example, but on the defensive front, trying to produce more secure code or trying to identify uh, malicious activity or nefarious activity in our environments quicker by using AI. So that AI arms race is going to be underway. I think other things that are going to be critical that, you know, really closely you're out for cybersecurity or software supply chain security, whether it's breaches of the most notable big, you know, kind of third-party vendors and software providers or open source off, uh, software, you know, uh, components and libraries and such that are being used widely by many organizations in the government and outside the government. And then last but not least, I think there's a lot of uh, conversation heating up around liability and responsibility. We see the thing with the SEC, for example, which is not you know, necessarily in the government space, but something to keep in mind of is just more accountability coming to the senior security leadership around what we say, how we say it, whether it's truthful or not. Taking responsibility for the outcome of the business when it comes to security is another topic I think is going to be at the forefront as we head into the new year. Yeah, one of the things one of the things that we're looking at at, at SoCure around identity is how AI is going to enable some of the the people looking to defraud governments um, through deep fakes, but it could be as simple as leveraging generative AI to do to do phishing emails, right? It, it could be a, a number of different things. Do you think? I, I don't know if we're right at that like tipping point yet, or or maybe we're close to a tipping point where like it's going to really be mainstream as something that everybody needs to be worried about. But from a cyber perspective, how real is AI in your opinion today? That, that people are leveraging these technologies to attack governments um, on an everyday basis. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, granted, I don't necessarily position myself as an AI expert, but I do my best to keep up with the trends and, and read the reports of activities that are going on and things like that. And I'm seeing, especially for some of these, you know, kind of low level activities, like you're talking about phishing, generating emails, communications, you know, trying to trick people, deep fake videos or communications like that audio communications, uh, it's pretty real. And, and, you know, the militia sectors are looking to, you know, we talk about, they're, they're doing the same thing we're trying to do. They're trying to be more productive, more effective, more, more effective, more efficient. And they're using these technologies for those exact purposes. So generating a massive amount of emails, getting those emails out, getting those communications out, trying to fake communications, get people to do things that they know they shouldn't be doing, or, you know, kind of uh, play a social engineering type attack on someone and trick them in some capacity is a great way to go about doing this. And they're using these technologies for these purposes. We see that the human element, you know, in, in sources such as Verizon's data breach investigation report, every year the human element is playing a major part and AI is really going to amplify that as they use these technologies to kind of trick or, you know, con humans. That's a great point. So the the one of the episodes I did at the end of 2023 with Brett Johnson, who's a, a former um, U.S. most wanted cyber criminal, 
um, he talked about the human element extensively, saying if when when he was doing what he was doing, uh, that was that was exactly where they went because it was the weakest link. What are you seeing governments do to try and educate um, the the employees that work for them to make sure that I mean, obviously, I mean, everybody who works in an organization. We get the we get the video training. We do all those kinds of things. But there is there anything beyond that that you think governments are doing or should be doing? to try to kind of harden that human element a little bit? I think that, you know, as you point out, we definitely see the common, uh, you know, CBTs or virtual-based training that we see with around educating people around, you know, uh, secure use of technology or accept acceptable use and things to keep an eye out for. And we all make jokes about the old videos that we had to watch in DOD with, you know, these virtualized characters and stuff. And those are still around and they're a great, <clears throat> a great method to get some fundamental knowledge to people, but people tend to click through those or just, you know, kind of mute it and let it play in the background or whatever. I think the best thing that you can do is have your security leadership, your security organization overall really get out the community and engage them, talk to people, understand what they do, what their workflows look like, what kind of activities are they doing on a daily basis, and then kind of bring up some uh, some considerations and concerns that as you're going about your day, hey, think about X, Y, and Z, or be on the lookout for this common, you know, kind of attack vector or this common kind of behavior that attackers use. Just bringing awareness to people in a human-to-human -human capacity versus you're kind of just throwing virtualized training at them is a great thing. And then honestly, building that competency as a workforce of a workforce that's, you know, literate when it comes to digital technologies and cybersecurity, so they know what to look for. Uh, they're empowered uh, to, to report things without feeling like they're going to get their hand slapped or get yelled at or something if they make a mistake, uh, because, well, the going back to shadow IT, if I feel like I'm going to get in trouble when I come forward and say, hey, I did a thing, I clicked something I shouldn't have, you know, people are just not going to tell you. Uh, so you need to have that trust and that communication among your workforce that they can come forward and bring those things to your attention versus the fact they need to sweep them under the rug and just kind of hide the truth. So we talked a little bit about how AI is being enabled for nefarious purposes. How are you seeing it being used to refute some of these things, right? Because obviously, um, I mean, we see a lot of times where we're working with governments leveraging AI and ML to make sure that we can automate and and kind of support them in mitigating fraud. Uh, how are you seeing it on the cybersecurity side of things? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this topic because, you know, like I said, we don't, as a security community, we need to not sit back and just watch what attackers are doing and kind of hypothesize about all the bad things that can go wrong with AI. We need to get out there and use these tools. And I'm seeing some really innovative capabilities from some of the major cybersecurity and technology providers who, are, you know, Honestly, we have a lot of telemetry from endpoints, servers, you know, uh, identities, applications, workloads, microservices, uh, you know, companies who are coming out here and using AI powered technologies to kind of bring some signal to that noise, all the noise that we're seeing, all that, all the alerts and the notifications and things like that, all the data points, right? And then we're also seeing some, you know, some interesting use cases around secure coding as people are going through into a development workflow, producing code, pushing it to production, maybe using AI to augment that and produce more secure code or bring, you know, vulnerabilities or misconfigurations or insecure uh, coding practices to the attention of the developer. And then obviously there's some uh, really unique capabilities that are coming out there to help people just uh, bring to the attention of the enterprise, to the security organization, what AI technologies, platforms, and services are being used. Bring some of that shadow AI, right, to the to the, 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 the limelight and the spotlight. Let you see what's being used by the enterprise. So you can go out there and see who's using it in what capacity, what data is going into these environments. Uh, should these providers be used or not? You know, how do we get a handle on this? So bringing that, you know, kind of shadow AI and letting you get some governance around that are some of the areas that I'm really excited about. And then I think, you know, organizations like CISA, who I've had some work in, uh, work with as well as a cyber innovation fellow right now, uh, they're looking to use AI for, uh, you know, securing critical infrastructure. So think about electricity, you know, uh, water utility systems, election is going to be a big one this year. We didn't mention that in predictions, but you can rest assured election is going to be a hot topic this year around AI and manipulation and dis you know, misinformation, things like that. 
And also using it to produce uh, more secure critical infrastructure is another uh, unique and exciting area as well. Yeah, I just decided I'm leaving my TV and turning my phone off. Just I'm I'm not going to engage whatsoever because <laughs> it is it is going to be it is going to be crazy after we saw the last election. It's just going to be nuts. Um, one question I I want to shift a little bit and and focus on kind of how cloud is is changing the game and obviously it's been doing so for a long time. Um, but selfishly, I have a question for you. As soon as you mentioned that that you were on the jab and did some reviews um, on the FedRAMP team. What was one of the, or I, I guess patternistically, what were some of the the major things that you saw companies do wrong or get wrong as they were trying to go through that process? I can imagine that there's a lot of people listening out there that are either thinking about going through the FedRAMP process, are going through it now. And I had a I had an old boss that uh, she was great, but we would we would go through the FedRAMP process and we were going through it and. She would say, "You you don't really know until you get all the the scars and bruises and bumps from going through it a couple times or at least once." Um, but if you could save at least a couple of those bruises and scars, uh, what are some of the challenges and and missteps that companies often would take? Yeah, honestly, I think there's a couple that I'll call out immediately. Obviously, there could be a, a million of type of scenarios, but it's just being unfamiliar with the process, you know, kind of jumping in or going all in on it without really understanding what the process is, what you're getting yourself into, what the requirements are, you know, what are the security control baselines, you know, low, moderate, high, for example, the controls that we need to be concerned with and how do we go about preparing responses for these controls. Uh, and ensuring that you have a vested, you know, sponsor, whether you're going through the jab or going with an agency, for example, having a partner in those capacities is critical so you can go through that process. And then you need, you need trusted advisors, whether it's an advisory firm, you know, that you're working with or internal resources who are familiar with FedRAMP and the requirements, just understanding what you're getting into, what the controls are, what you need to be anticipating, and then ensuring that you're comprehensively documenting everything in the right, uh, you know, type of artifacts and formats that the, the FedRAMP PMO and the three PAOs, et cetera, are going to be looking for as you go through your assessments to get an authorization uh, can save a lot of heartache. But, you know, obviously it's something that, like you point out, you learn by doing in many cases. You know, there's a lot of gotchas or I didn't think of that or I, oh, I wasn't, you know, familiar with this requirement or I didn't know this would be a thing. Uh, and a lot of times you learn that by going through the process. And that's why it's like important to engage people, whether internally on your team, you hire who have experience or externally as advisors and so on, uh, who know what to anticipate and can kind of guide you down that path. Uh, so I just think going through, the, you know, knowing the process, what to anticipate, knowing the requirements, the security controls is a big one that people need to get on their radar as early as possible. I, before before we press record on this, you and I were talking a little bit about kind of security through compliance. Um, and obviously, FedRAMP meets that bill, uh, right? And one of the things I think is cool is that we've seen over the past five, six years, private sector looking at FedRAMP and saying, hey, that's a great program. We need to adopt at least the control sets that are within there. So we'll see things come through like FedRAMP-like uh, baselines. Um, and I think that's great. But tell me a little bit about why a program like FedRAMP is so important. Right. You, you and I, again, we, we talked a little bit about it and why, uh, yes, security by compliance is a challenge, but it's also kind of uh, a, a curse. Right. Just based on human, uh, again, the, the way humans go about things. But tell me a little bit about why it's such an important program. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit off air, but the reality is as much as we all like to bemoan, uh, uh, you know, compliance, the reality is like, you know, most organizations, aside from the most well-resourced and capable or altruistic organizations, are focused on things like market share and revenue and profit and things like that. They're not going to necessarily prioritize cybersecurity unless it's a forcing function requiring them to do so. And that's why compliance is so critical is that's what that does. It acts as that forcing function. 
Uh, and so if you think about it in the government context, you know, the government has this, you know, first had the, the cloud first, you know, uh, mandate, then it evolved to cloud smart. And they have been really, uh, you know, committed to adopting innovative cloud service providers and cloud service offerings as part of their digital transformation efforts. You know, whether you're talking federal civilian, the Department of Defense, intelligence community, et cetera. Uh, but without some kind of standardized process methodology and, you know, set of controls, we would have this robust, uh, you know, use of cloud that we really don't know if it's secure. Does it have, you know, have they done identity and access management correctly? Are they using encryption in the right capacities? You know, have they documented their architecture? How are they handling data flows? And on and on and on, right? You would just have, and I talked about software supply chain attacks. Uh, cloud service providers are a key attack vector in that conversation. If I can compromise, you know, the Octas, the Microsofts, you, you, you name it of the world, they're being used by now like thousands of commercial organizations, but, you know, hundreds or thousands of, you know, government agencies around the world as well, I can have a massive impact on those environments, whether we're talking about civic uh, services, critical infrastructure, national security and weapon systems, and, and on, you know, you see. So FedRAMP acts as that forcing function that, you know, force organizations to do these fundamental security controls that they need to use for their cloud service offering to make it some, you know, to provide some level of assurance to the federal government that this organization has done their due diligence. They have fundamental security controls in place and it's been attested and assessed by a third party, an independent third party or assessment organization that is attesting to the, you know, the cloud service provider following these controls. I just want to add on that note, though, there are some challenges. You know, you add the third party assessment process in there. FedRAMP has been around for over a decade now. And, you know, in a market of tens of thousands of cloud service offerings, we have about 300, you know, give or take authorized services. Uh, so it really can constrain the federal government's access to innovative cloud service offerings as well. Uh, but you know, would you have would you rather have more suppliers with less governance and rigor and you know security of those suppliers, or would you rather have uh, less suppliers that are more secure, arguably more secure, or at least have done some due diligence around compliance and fundamental security activities? And you got to kind of pick your poison at that that you know kind of dichotomy that you have there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've mentioned that a couple times. Where does at least ask the question, right? Does this inhibit? government's access to emerging technologies, or I like the way you put it, would you rather have more with less less hardened posture? Would you have less that you can trust? And I think that's a good way to put it. And there's another uh, compliance program coming out that kind of asks that same question, right? In in CMMC around, uh, around DOD and try to protect the defense industrial base. We saw some guidance come out at the end of 2023. Do you want to update some of the listeners on on some of that guidance and kind of what we can expect from this program in the future? Yeah, just real quick on the note of inhibiting access to innovative suppliers, you know, I think it, it certainly does. Things like FedRAMP and of course, what we're about to talk about, which is CMMC, uh, also it will inhibit access to suppliers or cloud service providers, you name it, uh, to the federal government. And, and one thing for my security practitioner peers in the community listening to this conversation is, we need to think about not only the risk of using something that's insecure, but the risk to economic prosperity and national security uh, when it comes to not having access to these innovative solutions and being forced to use legacy technologies in many cases or legacy suppliers and legacy platforms because we simply can't get to these innovative suppliers, at least in a compliant fashion. We have to kind of get around using it uh, in an unauthorized fashion or something like that. So, you know, security practitioners need to keep in mind uh, that inhibiting access to innovative solutions you know, has its risk associated with it as well. We're talking about keeping pace with, you know, uh, near peer adversaries, other nations, things like that. That's a consideration. Uh, but so what you're talking about is the evolution of the, you know, cybersecurity maturity model certification, CMMC. And this came about because initially, you know, they had what was called NIST 8171. All the defense industrial based suppliers would self attest, you know, they would give their word basically that, yes, we are doing all these security controls identified in NIST 8171. 
And we've done, you know, the right things around identity and access management, incident response, business continuity, you know, you name it, all the different controls that are captured in that, in that framework. Uh, but the challenge there is, you know, when there's contracts and revenue on the line, or even a lack of expertise in cybersecurity and things like that, when those things are at play, you might have a situation where suppliers are inclined to maybe not necessarily be as truthful about their compliance posture, or maybe structure truth, or maybe they just don't have the expertise to right, you know, properly assess this. So CMMC came about and you know is creating this paradigm where every dip supplier, defense industrial-based supplier, is now going to need to have that third-party assessment done on an, on an initial basis, and then they have to self-attest on an annual basis and be reassessed every three years. It's went through a lengthy approval process and maturity process, you know, to get to where it is now. They finally came about finalizing that rule at the end of 2023. And I think it's going to be making its way into contracts in the coming, you know, I don't know, don't quote me, but, you know, 12, 24 months, 36 months, depending on the, the data, you know, uh, level of CMMC one, two or three, there's different levels of, you know, rigor based on the data, whether it's uh, FCI financial contract or federal contract information or CUI controlled and classified information, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so now the industry is trying to wrestle with that. It's like, you know, what do we need to meet? What do we need to do? And if you haven't been preparing for this or paying attention to it already, obviously that could have an impact on you as an organization because now you're going to be scrambling to play catch up. Uh, and obviously it's it's definitely going to have a disproportionate impact on the small business community in the defense industrial base. It's it's one thing for a Lockheed or a Boeing or, you know, those kind of organizations to meet these requirements because they have, you know, thousands of staff and a lot of competent, you know, security professionals, additional revenue and and you know, money and resources that they can put at, this, at meeting this compliance framework versus a small mom and pop shop who is trying to meet this emerging, you know, compliance framework and they simply don't have the resources, expertise, or, you know, uh, uh, bandwidth to essentially go about doing this. So they're going to have to engage a third party, you know, to advise them about how to go about doing so and talk about constraining access to things. Again, uh, we know that we've seen a massive, you know, cons uh, consolidation in the industrial base in DOD, for example, over the last decade. Uh, we can likely anticipate more of that to come as organizations say, hey, it's too costly, it's too cumbersome, it's too uh, bureaucratic, whatever, have a, you know, heavy handed uh, for us to meet this. Maybe the defense industrial base is just not for us or DOD is not a customer for us. We're not mature enough or, it's, you know, we just don't, don't want to simply go down that path. And that's something to keep in mind when we talk about getting access to innovative technologies and suppliers, you know, competing with organizations or nations such as China and others. Uh, we need those innovative suppliers. We need those innovative technologies and capabilities. And if we constrain the defense industrial base too much or make it too cumbersome and costly to do business with the DOD, it can have a national security implication. So again, you know, we need to think about the risk of not just not only being compliant or not having good cybersecurity, but access to innovative suppliers and technologies is a risk of itself that we need to consider as well. Well, and the irony is, I mean, there it's almost trying to, I mean, I, I don't think the government's worried about the Lockheeds and Boeings and, and Northrop's of the world, right? They know those are hardened. They're worried about what the weakest link is in that chain. And oftentimes it is the, uh, the ones that don't have the resources to do those things. So the irony is the ones that don't have the resources that they're trying to actually have hardened are the ones that aren't going to be able to keep up with this. So you do lose, it's a little bit of a catch 22, I think in that way, right? Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, I hate to say, uh, you know, say it this way, but compliance is somewhat of a blunt instrument. You know, they apply it uniformly across this large body of thousands or hundreds of thousands of companies uh, because, you know, you can't go in company by company. It's too much of a, a it, it wouldn't be practical, right, to go about doing it like that. So they apply this blunt instrument of compliance across the ecosystem and some companies will be well-resourced and, and have the capabilities and resources to address it and others simply won't. And they'll be struggling to even afford to engage an advisor or someone to help them go through this process and meet these requirements. Uh, and they may just be trying to make it into the ecosystem or you know, keep their phase one, two, three cyber alive or whatever the case is, right? 
so you know it's going to have an impact on the ecosystem. Uh, but again, it's that it's that double-edged sword. If we don't have something like this in place, and dip suppliers can either self-attest to their compliance and security, or simply not have to do it whatsoever, other foreign adversaries, and you know whether it's nation states or you know just people with uh, malintention towards the United States can go in there and steal intellectual property, compromise critical suppliers of the defense industrial base and DOD, and have a massive impact on our national security as well. So it's it's not an easy problem to solve. And there's no perfect solution, and, and you'll never make everyone happy. It's a very challenging dynamic. Before we jump into uh, last five questions, uh, I mean, what advice do you have for some of these smaller companies that do need to comply with these measures, whether it be FedRAMP, whether it be CMMC, or any of the like? I mean, what advice would you have for them? And if part of that advice is working with third parties, what type of evaluation criteria do you think is really important for, for them to understand as they're getting in there. Yeah, whether it's, you know, FedRAMP or CMMC or, you know, even commercial standards like SOC 2 and so on, uh, you know, many organizations are simply not going to have the internal familiarity and expertise around these different compliance requirements and frameworks. So you're going to engage a third party in many cases. So, you know, first is going to be seeing, you know, who has a track record of expertise and competency in this domain that can provide me sound advice uh, and who has done this before? Have they helped other organizations navigate this pathway? You know, do they have a track record of being capable and competent in this domain? Uh, or, or do they, you know, are they simply just trying to capitalize on this market that's emerging and, you know, get out there and make some money off some unsuspecting, uh, you know, defense industrial based company or some software company looking to do work with the federal government. So seeing, you know, who, who can be trusted, who has a proven track record, and honestly, who has some integrity, uh, because there is a lot of money to be made in this space. And, and many organizations are simply out there trying to capture that without necessarily doing what's best for the customer or software vendor and things like that. So go out and try to see, you know, what's in the market, who can be trusted, who is working with others, who has a good reputation, who has, you know, word of mouth, you know, whatever the case is, you know, definitely do your due diligence. Uh, and then many cases when, when it's FedRAMP, you know, you want to see who has experience with FedRAMP, uh, whether as you know, an employee or a contractor or, you know, in FedRAMP's case, a certified third-party assessment organization. So they kind of tell you who you can trust because these organizations are designated as, you know, being allowed to do a third-party assessment for FedRAMP. And the same thing is emerging for CMMC. We now have these certified 3PAOs, as they call them, uh, that are certified to go and do a CMMC assessment. But before you can get, you know, assessed to be authorized and approved, uh, you actually have to work with an advisory firm. And that's a little bit more ambiguous because there's not like a really a marketplace of approved advisory firms. So it really comes down to reputation, track record, uh, you know, competency and expertise. That's that's great advice. I think, I mean, having having to traverse, traverse this minefield a few times, um, it, picking the right partner is absolutely invaluable. So it's it's making sure you're you're doing that, doing your due diligence and getting the right one with that expertise is crucial. Chris, thanks for that advice. Obviously, uh, it comes with a lot of background, a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom. Um, and I know it's really valuable. And with that, before we wrap up, I want to get into our uh, our final five questions. And uh, I'm going to start with the first one. What's the best advice you've ever gotten, Chris? Uh, it's going to sound cheesy, but you know, in this ecosystem, I think it goes a long way to be yourself as, as simple as that is. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people are out there, you know, trying to project a certain image on social media or just, you know, say what they think needs to be said to land a deal or get some business, uh, but those kind of behaviors catch up with you. So I think just being authentic is a great way to go about, you know, building trust in the ecosystem and you know, building a reputation for yourself. And it ultimately kind of like success, you know, begets more success. So you build those relationships, you know, build that network by being yourself and just being your, you know, who you are genuinely can go a long way. And honestly, it gives you peace of mind. You're not faking it. You're not being inauthentic or just having some kind of 
uh, intention of taking advantage of someone. I think that's really good advice. And I, I like the, it'll catch up with you because you're absolutely right. Whether it's not being authentic or whether it's not being truthful at the end of the day, you're always running from something. So I think being yourself and, and being honest up front is, is the way to go. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Um, I would say, you know, maybe some people don't agree with this, but fake it till you make it. Uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of, I, I shared something earlier today. Uh, I talked about learning out loud. So just being transparent with like, Hey, here's what I don't know. Here's what I'm learning. Here's the resources I'm using to learn it. Here's, you know, kind of the journey that I'm on. And, and if you fail, say you fail, you know, whether it's a certification exam, you know, or didn't land a deal, you didn't get a dream job, uh, be transparent about that. You know, you don't have to fake it. Uh, I think it comes across again, a, a lot better to be authentic and be open and transparent with the community and other people that you're engaging of just, you know, what your deficiencies are, how you're working on addressing those. Um, and, you know, you kind of, if you're faking it, you're never going to address the deficiencies in your knowledge, expertise, or, you know, who you are as an individual. I'd like to rather openly address like, hey, here's what I'm not good at. I really need to get better at this. I don't want to fake it. I want to go out and actually become competent and capable in these domains. So I'm going to be open about my shortfalls and then engage people who can give me advice on how to address them and become better. If I'm faking it, I'm never going to address it. I'm just kind of sweeping under the rug and pretending it doesn't exist. Well, and the thing that always surprises me, because I, I think that's that's a really good one. The thing that always surprises me is the number of people that you find that are on the same journey or the same learning path that you're on. You think you're alone. You think you're the only one in the room or only one in the in the group that doesn't know this answer. But when you're transparent and honest, you realize, oh, there's a lot of other people that are now raising their hands saying, oh, yeah, I wanted to know that too. So I think that transparency only kind of, to me, breeds camaraderie at the same time. And, and that growth muscle is so important. Yeah. And in that room that you talked about real quick on that note, it's like, you know, everyone's afraid to raise their hand and say, Hey, I don't know what that means. Or like, I don't know how to do X. Uh, but if no one actually raises their hand, everyone walks away just in the same place they were before they walked in that room, where if someone raises their hand and says, Hey, I, I need to learn more. Can you help me on X, Y, Z? Uh, everyone walks away better, right? You have some resources you can go dig into, or you have an answer to the question that you didn't have. Uh, so again, if you're really truly interested in being your best, you got to openly and, you know, in a head-on fashion, address those deficiencies and just being open and, and honest about what your shortcomings are uh, is the only way to get better. Those are some great ones. All right. Question number three, who's somebody in history that you'd like to have dinner with? Uh, this one for me, you know, it's, uh, it's personal. I'd say my mom, I lost her, you know, a few years ago and I'd love to, you know, hang out with her again and have dinner. So no one fancy, no, no one famous, uh, just my mom. That's a cool one. Uh, just a side note. We had uh, Melinda Rogers on the CIO for US DOJ towards the end of last year, and hers was her dad. And by the time she got done explaining all the reasons why I I wanted to have a conversation with her dad. So no, I think I think the ones that are personal are the ones that are um, some of the obviously more meaningful and and the ones that the conversations that go the farthest. So that's that's cool. Number four, what's inspiring you right now? Ah, oh, this is an easy one, man. We started off talking about parenthood and being a dad and having kids. Uh, it's really hard for me to wake up and know that I'm responsible for four kids and my wife and just not be my best or strive to be my best. Uh, you know, I'm responsible for them. They look up to me as an example. They look to me to provide for them, whether financially, you know, emotionally, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I live with my inspiration every day and it's easy to, you know, be driven when people rely on you. That's a really good one. I, I, I want to throw one out here because I had a conversation with somebody this week and I don't usually answer these questions, but I thought it was worth kind of adding. I had somebody from my alma mater, uh, Liberty University, reach out and just wanted, they're, they're graduating in the spring 
and wanted to get some advice and ask questions and just learn more before they get into the world and um, reached out to me on LinkedIn. And we set up some time to talk. And I, first of all, I, I advise that to anybody. Don't be afraid to kind of reach out, use, use your network, meet people, no matter who it is. I think everybody out there, I mean, for the most part, really wants to help. Um, it's a great way to get uh, some good advice, some wisdom. Um, but the thing that's inspiring me is we got to the end of the conversation and I come to find out, and I think I can call him a kid because I, I turned 41 this year. This kid is 17 years old, Chris. He's a senior in college, graduated high school at 15. He's 17 years old um, and is about to enter the workforce. And the reason why that's so inspiring is we get so many so many articles and, and news reports and things that we see about the next generation and how how lazy they are and and all these different negative attributes um and i don't i i think that's never that's never the truth for for a broad spectrum of people right there's always outliers but here's this this kid who's 17 years old is is inspirational because he's striving to get out and and achieve things and it's inspiring to me because if that is what the the future of of the country looks like the future of the workforce looks like and that's the way they're driven i think that's really inspiring so i wanted to throw that out there because i um i got really inspired this week and i thought it was i thought it was pretty cool honestly yeah definitely i think that you know i think every generation kind of you know uh, obviously denigrates but like speaks negatively about the, the generation behind them they're lazy they're you know they don't have any work ethic whatever the case is uh, but, you know, kids today are under tremendous, tremendous pressure, whether academically, socially, you know, the integration of technology in every aspect of their lives. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, it's the same thing with the news, like you talk about avoiding the news. I think we kind of highlight and amplify the negative things and avoid, you know, addressing all the positive and, and really inspiring stories and individuals that are out there. Uh, so I, I share that same hope. Uh, I'm hoping to raise a few of those myself, obviously, uh, and I think we'll be all right. All right. Last question. And this is, this should be a good one for you because I see on social media all the time, you're sharing some great books, some great insights. Um, so where do you go to self-educate? Uh, yeah, I definitely go to many places. This is a challenging one. If it's technical stuff, I have different websites, you know, for learning platforms around technology and cybersecurity and cloud and things like that. Uh, but I'm a voracious reader. Uh, you know, I am always reading, uh, you know, my kids and, and family will tell you, like, I often have a book with me if I'm in a car somewhere, or if I'm walking, you know, to some activity, I'm, I'm carrying a book with me of some sort, whether it's a personal development book, you know, something I'm interested in around history or it's a technology oriented type book. I just love reading. I'm always, you know, you can't see it right now, but my desktops uh, have about 300 different tabs open of things that sound interesting to me that I need to go read and learn about. And granted, I'll never get to many of them, uh, but I just love reading. And the, the abundance of resources and information that's at our fingertips right now is tremendous. And, I, you know, it'd be a shame not to take advantage of it. That's cool. Any, any, uh, any book in particular that you're reading right now that you would, uh, that you would advise? Yeah, you know, I'll throw a quick one out there. One I keep on my desk, and it's been here for several years now, is the Daily Stoic. Uh, every day, I pick it up. You know, I read whatever the daily little note in, in there is about stoicism and mindset and different aspects of, you know, how we approach life. And, you know, it's a little nugget every day. You can take away something interesting and something uplifting many days. Awesome. Hey, Chris, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time. I think you obviously have a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, as I said, and I think the people... The people listening to this episode, um, whether you're on the government side, the industry side, I think um, definitely took something away today. So really appreciate the time, especially as we uh, jump into 2024. Yeah, appreciate that. I'm excited to come on, like I said, and I hope everyone has a great 2024. We got some exciting stuff ahead of us. 
This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistrabe. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.